Well, it's always good to have your Bibles open when you're sitting under the Word of God. So uh, if you brought one, open it. If not, we have pew Bibles for you. Page 1003, 1003, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 11, chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 11, and we're going into chapter 6, verse 12. Um, let me begin with a small warning. This sermon is going to be about seven minutes longer than average. Sorry about that. Um, now, this shouldn't be an issue for most of us, especially if you've ever binge-watched an entire season of, say, Sneaky Pete in one night. And how you respond to the news I just gave you um, will indicate how much you need this sermon this morning. See, our passage this morning is one of the harshest warnings in all of the New Testament. See, in this letter, the writer points out a troubling concern that he has. Those to whom he has been writing have been Christians long enough to be mature, but they're not. Instead of childlike faith, they exhibit childish immaturity. So he issues them and a warning, it's time to grow up. This passage is a warning for us all, as you will see, to grow up spiritually the question is, will we sit under this teaching? Hebrews 5, uh, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Ooh, that's good. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. Yes, it is a harsh rebuke of all of us, including the pastor who stands here. Help us to sit under this teaching. May your spirit show us um, not just where we fall short, but also how you lift us and lead us and guide us, we pray. Amen. You know, I, I remember when my kids were little and we gathered around the table and they would drink milk, and you know what would happen, right? They would get one of those milk mustaches on their upper lip. For some reason, they just could not drink milk without getting it there on their lip. Now, milk mustaches look great on a six-year-old, but at some point, you grow up, or at least you should. The writer to the Hebrews takes a moment in this long written sermon to exhort the churches to whom he is writing. Essentially, he's saying this, when I look into your spiritual lives as Christians, why is it that so many of you have spiritual milk mustaches? It's time to grow up. Spiritual maturity was a big problem with troubling consequences back then, and spiritual immaturity remains a big problem with troubling consequences today. Thankfully, the writer to the Hebrews loves his church and churches, so he leans in and he says, now, let's learn how to drink your milk so you can grow up and go on to solid food. You know, sometimes we need tough love, right? A love that kind of slaps us in, this, in the face, figuratively speaking. The writer here is doing something similar, except not physically, spiritually. He's saying to them, brothers and sisters, there is so much on the line, it's time to grow up. And after years of ministry, I've come to see that, listen, most Christians think they are more spiritually mature than they really are. And listen, I think I'm more spiritually mature than I really am. I, like you, have a tendency to be dull and sluggish, like those in our text. And so this isn't a sermon for the person sitting next to you or perhaps that mean uncle. It's for you, it's for me. Now the sermon is titled, It's Time to Grow Up. So let us all desire to press on to full maturity in Christ. We're going to divide our time under three headings. The diagnosis, the danger, and the direction. First, the diagnosis. Now, there's an author named Jim Putnam. He's a pastor out west in Idaho, and he has written a book that has shaped our Grace Group discipleship training here at Grace Church. And in his book, Real Life Discipleship, Putnam delves into the four stages of spiritual growth. They are spiritual infants, spiritual children, spiritual young adults, and spiritual parents. Our intensive Grace Group discipleship groups are designed to grow us from infant into spiritual parents. Now, Putnam makes this eerie diagnosis of the Christian church in America. He, most Christians in America, says Putnam, are spiritual infants. Infants, not young adults, not even spiritual children. <laughs> infants. Putnam lists a number of things that characterize immature Christians. Here's a few of them. Listen, they are ignorant about what they need spiritually and what the Bible says about life and the purpose of being a Christian. They have unrealistic expectations of themselves and others. 
They have a worldly perspective about life with some spiritual truth mixed in. They believe that feelings are most important, which leads to spiritual highs and lows. They mimic mature Christians' behavior in order to look good and gain praise. And they serve others in ministry so long as the benefit outweighs the cost. Spiritual and mature Christians say things like, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, or my spouse is my accountability partner, I don't need anyone else. Or I pray, I read my Bible, that's good enough for me. Or I didn't like the music today, if only they did it like fill in the blank. Or I'm not being fed at my church, I'm going to a church that meets my need. See, spiritually mature people use the word I, 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 me, 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 a lot. They're stuck in spiritual infancy, and they don't even think that they're lacking. Oh, they're quick to point out everyone else and how they're lacking. One thing I've observed about spiritually mature people is that they have really strong convictions about what other Christians should or shouldn't do. And when they enter a worship service, they they look to find things that they don't like. Oh, it's one of those. Really, what should they be looking for? They should be asking questions like, Do the leaders in the church love the people and shepherd them well? Is the word of God faithfully preached? Is is Jesus the hero of every sermon? Are the members of the body being discipled? Do they love their neighbors well? Are they a people seeking to abide in Christ? My friends, spiritually immature people sadly do not abide in Christ. Instead, they abide in their own preferences. They're good at pointing out what is wrong with the other churches or Christians, but they themselves are stuck with an invisible milk mustache. Now, listen, every church should have spiritual infants, right? Think about it. It's a sign that people are coming to faith in in and through that church. The problem is many Christians never truly grow beyond the infancy or child stages. Thankfully, the writer here gives us some criteria by which we can diagnose spiritual maturity. The first criteria is a dullness or sluggishness. The first verse in our passage, the writer says, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And in the very last verse in our passage, he writes that he hopes they may not be sluggish. Now our English words dull and sluggish are actually a translation of the same Greek word, Um, It's just one word. It's nothros. It means to be lazy or sluggish. It's often used in the New Testament with regards to obedience and following after Christ. The writer to the Hebrews diagnoses that the churches as a whole are dull or lazy or sluggish in following after Christ. And because of their dullness, the writer is unable to carry adult conversations with them. And parents, isn't that what we really long for with our children? When they're toddlers, we long for the day when they no longer have to wear diapers. They can put on their own underpants. They can get their own food out of the fridge, pick out their own clothes for the next day. We look forward to the day when we no longer have to argue with them every time they need to brush their teeth or get on the bus or clean their rooms. We long for our children to mature, and this is a good thing. My kids are now in high school and college, and and I enjoy sitting down and having adult conversations with them. Now, here 
the writer here is saying he wishes he could have adult conversations. He would like to talk to them about deep spiritual truths, but instead they still need this little bottle of baby formula. Now, what is at the heart of, of this dullness? Let me give you another example from my kids. Sorry, kids. Promise to make it up to you. Where do you want to go for lunch? Somewhere, somewhere good? Oh, my daughter's like, yeah, okay. One thing that frustrates me as a parent, and maybe you as well, is, is when my kids use the phrase, I know, Dad. <laughs> they say it all the time, and I totally get it. No one likes to be reminded of anything, right? <laughs> but the problem is, the reason I have to say, don't forget your chores, or don't forget to send that thank you card, is because they forgot to do their chores or send the thank you card. And so when they reply, I know, Dad, my reply is, well, if you know, why didn't you do it? That, my friends, is what's going on with spiritual immaturity. Spiritually immature Christians know, but they are dull and sluggish, and they do not do. Let me ask you, do you see this tendency in your own life? You know, but we can be dull and sluggish and not do. That is the first sign that helps diagnose if you need uh, to grow up spiritually, dullness, sluggishness. The second is this. You can know if you're spiritually immature if you are of, listen, if you are of little use to other Christians. We see this in verse, in chapter 5, 12, and 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, listen, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then he calls them to maturity in 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. The writer to the Hebrews wishes he could have an adult conversation with these churches to get deep, to get joyful, to get excited. By now, they should have been able to lead others and teach others. They should be more skilled in the basics of Christianity. They should be skilled about the words of righteousness and powers of discernment. They should know that the life is not about them. It's about Christ and his kingdom and what it looks like to, to live for his glory with, listen, great patience and faithfulness. They should have reached the stage where they rejoice with the same words that define Paul's life. In Galatians 2.20, here's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen. Being useful to Christ and his kingdom should be our greatest hope and desire and longing in all of our lives. He who gave his own son for us and has promised us all good things, shall we not delight in him and live for him? Shall we not live this cruciform life that our Savior calls us to? Shall we not daily take up our cross and follow after him? 
Immature Christians keep having to learn the same simple gospel lessons over and over. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Simple Bible truths meant to be drunk like milk from a baby's bottle. Simple truths meant to lay a foundation for more and more growth. But immature Christians will not progress beyond it. They need to keep circling back again and again. Picture a hiker who's lost and keeps passing the same place again and again. Instead of climbing up on a nearby hill or mountain to get the lay of the land, he keeps circling back. Christians who lack maturity need to be reminded again and again that because Christ forgave us, we're to forgive others. Because Christ lived in obedience to his Father, so to us. Because Jesus is holy, we too are to be holy. Because Jesus is patient, has patience with his followers, we too must have patience with others. Because Jesus endured hardship for the kingdom of heaven, we too must endure hardship for Christ's sake in his kingdom. Immature Christians keep returning to the same place again and again. They keep exhibiting the same anger, the same jealousy, the same bitterness, the same insecurities, the same impatience, week after week, month after month. At some level, they believe the gospel. They have drunk the baby formula of the gospel. But instead of using that nutrition and the energy from that spiritual milk to climb up upon the foundation of the gospel and to press on in great faith and patience and holiness, in their sluggishness, they circle back to it all over again. Do you understand this? I know it's tough, isn't it? That's what, that's what he's saying to us. Now, here's what I hope you hear from this text. Listen, the more mature your life is, this is really simple, the more mature your life is, the better your life is, not worse. Solid food is far more satisfying than milk for every meal, right? Having adult conversations is far more enjoyable, right? Think about it, just as maturing out of your teenage years, remember that, right? Remember once you got out of your teenage years, all this freedom is like, wow. You know, just as maturing out of your teenage years into your 20s offers, uh, ushers in far greater freedom and opportunities for fulfillment and joy, so too the more mature you are as a Christian, the more your life opens up to the experiences and the joys that only mature Christians get to experience. The joy of giving meaningful counsel to a hurting couple or leading on a missions trip or helping a brother or sister to hold on to Christ as you walk with them through cancer treatments. Immature Christians aren't in a position to do such life-giving things. And this maturity, it changes your relationships too. Much of my marital counseling uh, involves couples that just need to mature. And the one who needs the most maturing is usually the one who insists it's the other person who needs to change and grow up. So if you want your marriage to flourish in the Lord, it's time to grow up. So that's the diagnosis. Now for the danger. More tough news here. I promise it ends well. Many people who lack spiritual maturity tend to think, yeah, I guess the diagnosis fits me. I'm immature. 
But so what? At the end of the day, I'm going to heaven. But the writer here says, listen, don't be so sure. Listen, spiritual immaturity brings with it the danger of falling away from Christ with no ability to return to him. We see this in chapter 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. And he gives an illustration. For the land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, here's the scary truth about Christianity. Churches everywhere have people in them who think they are Christians. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They have experienced the Holy Spirit at work around them. They may have even led a successful evangelism explosion team or led a prayer retreat. They have maybe have shared in all these great Christian experiences, but in the end, they fall away. Most leave the church for good. Others stick around, but they're really just kind of walking dead. And the sad truth, listen, the sad truth that we read is that there's actually no hope for them. They cannot come back to God. The door is forever closed. We call this apostasy. The Bible addresses it in a number of other places. John calls it the sin unto death. Jesus calls it the sin against the Holy Spirit. Though called different things, the same point is always made, is that there is no possible recovery from this sin. Now, before we go into what the Bible teaches about apostasy, what it is, let's look at a few things of what it's not. First, apostasy isn't simple unbelief. The unbeliever outside the church cannot apostatize because they never claim to believe in the first place. Second, and of more importance for us here today, is that if you're worried about whether you've committed the sin, you probably haven't. Theologian and pastor Robert Rayburn says this about apostasy. The man who commits the sin unto death does not worry afterward that he might have done so. He goes on to say that if you're terrified that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, then you've not committed it. Does that make sense? Now, the important point is that the danger here is not just that certain people cannot repent and be restored, but rather they will not. They have come to reject the gospel. They will not come back to God pleading for a second chance. So who then is the writer describing here? It is someone who in every way appears to be a genuine Christian, but in the end abandons Christ, falls away. And if you've been a Christian for a while, no doubt you know somebody who is going to church with you. They seem to be alive in the things of God. They knew scripture. When they prayed, they sounded pretty good. And when they, one day they said, yeah, forget it. I don't believe it anymore. I was a Christian once, but never again. Now, were these people really Christians in the first place? No, they just looked like it. They even thought they were, but they weren't. Remember, as John says in one of his letters, the reason why they went out from us was because, why? They were never from us. 
Now, the scary thing before us this day is that there are people in the church who insist that they are Christians, but in fact, one day they will fall away. The scary truth is what we read of in verse 4 to 6. It's impossible for those who have fallen away to restore them again. I get it. I know as Christians, we like to think that as long as someone has lungs in their breath, they haven't died yet, there's a chance of them repenting and trusting in Christ. But no, there are some who have crossed the line of no return long before they die. And listen, this is not God's fault. God is patient. God is merciful. The problem isn't that God has sealed their fate before they die. The problem is that they have sealed their own faith. I like how F.F. Bruce describes it, and especially in this pandemic era, I think we kind of understand what he's saying. He writes, people, listen, people are frequently immunized against the disease by being inoculated with a mild form of it or with the related but milder disease. And in the spiritual realm, experience suggests that it's possible to be immunized against Christianity by being inoculated with something which, for the time being, looks like the real thing that it is generally mistaken for. Yeah. Those who apostatize have been inoculated. They've inoculated themselves against the real gospel. They think they know what it is, and for them it's no longer true. They cannot and will not turn to Christ in faith and be saved. So, The danger, the writer says, he says, watch out. Be careful that your immaturity in the end doesn't lead you to fall away from Christ. Because here's the the point that I want us to get. We went through all this just to get to this point. Let me ask you, what is it that precedes apostasy? What is the spiritual state of everyone right before they fall away and say, nah, It's immaturity, right? Do you see that? If you are sluggish in your own spiritual growth and you are immature in the faith, guess what? So too were everyone who, every one of those supposed Christians who fell away. The last step of those who turn away from Christ forever were the steps of the spiritually immature. That is why this is such a great danger. So the writer is warning us, watch out. If you continue to walk the path of immaturity, then the path you may actually be on is one that forever leads you away from Christ and his promise of eternal life. You understand that? That's why spiritual immaturity is so dangerous, why we must put it aside and and move on. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but not me. Yeah, I need to get over my consumeristic life or my lack of forgiveness or my bitterness or my anger issues. Listen, everyone has struggles. I get it. There's a huge difference between battling your sin and the power of the Holy Spirit and being dull and sluggish and full of excuses with your sin. You understand that? The writer here is saying, be careful. For if you fail to put to death your old you and come alive in Christ on his path to maturity, you may fall away. All it will take, listen, is one prolonged hardship in which you question the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God, or you question both, and you are out. You will say good riddance, and you will with great confidence think that 
Those Christians were wrong after all. You will fall away certain that you are right. You will have crossed the point of no return. And you will be fine. That is why embracing this call to grow up spiritually is so important. This desire with, with, to, to, with all our hearts, press on to full maturity in Christ must be forefront in our mind. So that's the diagnosis and the danger. Now for the direction. Well, since it's March Madness, uh, how about considering a basketball illustration? Uh, sorry, Mark out about your UCLA Bruins. I guess you're watching online. That was a tough loss last night. Um, consider a basketball coach at halftime. His team was dull and sluggish in the first half. He says, guys, you rank number 10 in the entire nation, but look at how you're playing. Do I need to teach you again the basic principles of passing and blocking out and rebounding? I've seen you play with great earnestness in the past. Now let's press on in victory. That's what the writer is doing here in this passage. It's halftime, so to speak. After hitting the congregation hard with the fact that they are showing themselves to be spiritually mature and then warning them of the danger of falling away, the author finishes this section on a very positive note. How so? Let's read verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show what the same earnestness to have the full assurance of the hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, perhaps some of you are thinking, what, why in the world would he hammer us and then so hard? And then if actually he thinks things are working out in the end, why would he do such a thing? Well, like the basketball coach, he is saying, I know you can do better. Um, I've seen it before. Now go and do it. Verse 9 he writes, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What an encouraging note. In verse 11, he promotes the opposite of dullness and sluggishness. What is it? It's earnestness. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Listen, God has given us in Christ Jesus all the reasons to live with great earnestness. How so? The writer directs us to two things, their faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to them. First, their faithfulness to God. The church has been producing a crop of God's blessing. Yes, it looks small. Yes, they don't quite know if it's a hundredfold uh, crop or a 60-fold or a 30-fold crop. Verse 10, we read, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name. This is kingdom-minded. This is Christ-centered love, as you still do. God is involved in their lives. Grace like heaven, uh, from heaven like rain, has showered on these churches. They're producing some fruit. And it's true, right? We can, we should look to our past, 
to see these acts of love and service that we have done for Christ's sake. And it should give us hope and a sense of earnestness to go on to maturity. And he also directs them to God's faithfulness towards them. In the end, that's where the solution lies. We are called to persevere in our faith, but ultimately we are kept in our faith by the power of God and by his grace. In verse 3, the writer says, and this we will do if God permits, right? That is, with God's help. That is, by God's sovereign grace, we will press on in earnestness towards maturity. Maturity signified by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, God himself, in your life as you work out your salvation. Also, remember Jesus' words of comfort in John chapter 10. He said, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And what? No one will snatch them out of my hand, right? See that assurance? And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Somehow we're in Jesus' hands and the father's hands, and there's no way, if you are saved, to be snatched out. Listen, God may allow you to stray for a season. He may allow you to be immature for a season, but he will not let you go. Earlier we sang these words from the song, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We sang, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Listen, you can have confidence that you will press on to maturity in the Christian life because God has promised to be faithful to you, his child. And as our passage ends, we see that since we have this hope from God, we need not be sluggish, but rather what? Imitators of other people who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's chapter 11 we're going to read um, eventually, but, you know, the direction here that the writer is pointing us into is discipleship in the body of Christ. It is in the body of Christ, the church, that we can be surrounded by and discipled by more mature followers of Christ that we look to and we imitate. As Paul once said, follow me as I follow Christ. This is why discipleship is so important at Grace Presbyterian Church. We are a church of disciples who make disciples. I guarantee you that if you are in a discipleship group, you will grow spiritually. How do I know? I just look at my own group. We've been meeting together for a year and a half. We have all grown spiritually. Listen, this is a course, so long as you're faithful and earnest, so long as you're not dull or sluggish in your commitment to being a disciple, you will grow because you will have godly men or women that you can look towards and imitate, who care for you and show you the way. And you can see how their faith and their patience allows them to lay hold of the promises of God with great joy. Faithfulness, patience, these are the hallmarks of a mature faith. So the writer ends this section with confidence that his readers will walk with the earnestness of hope until the end because there are mature Christians in the body around them who will disciple them into greater and greater maturity. Now, if you're part of Grace Church, this is your home church, this should give you great hope. Our number one priority here is to be making disciples, so you're in a good place. 
Now, if you're not yet in one of our grace groups, we will be forming new grace groups in six months. It might seem like a long time, but it will come quickly, right? If you are in a grace group, listen to this. How about we all recommit to not being dull or sluggish, to approach it half-hearted? May we be earnest in all the work that we do in all of our times of gathering. May our hope in the promises of Christ produce in us this earnestness. And if you are one of the Grace Group co-leaders, well, know that in six months you may be called upon to lead your own group. So get ready. We've got six months. Now, I know we're all a little bit hungry. I'm going to end with a little bit of talk about food. Sorry. We can all learn a lot from the famous French chef, Alain Passard. A few years back, the Financial Times Magazine conducted an interview with this much-admired Parisian chef. The interview gives us a glimpse into a man's life who was a good example of moving on to maturity. There's a number of questions. The first question is this. What was the first job you were given in the kitchen? Answer. As an apprentice chef, I remember the first day was July 13, 1971. My tasks were to peel the shallots, finally chop the parsley, and flute the lemons. I don't even know what that means. Passard learned the ABCs of being a chef. Next question. Were there any chores you disliked? No, nothing. Even the washing up can be beautiful if you do it properly. Passard embraced the hardships that are associated with being a world-class chef. It doesn't come easy. It's not all glamorous. Question, how would your sous chefs, that's the assistant chefs, how would they describe you? Answer, as a teacher, someone who helps the young to learn, as a ferryman, someone who is concerned about passing on their profession. Bessard has matured into a disciple maker of less mature chefs. It's beautiful. Another question, is the customer always right? In my computer business, I ran, I would tell my salespeople, the customer is always right, unless they're wrong. <laughs> but here's his answer, is a little better than mine. Yes, always. I am there to serve others' commands. And I always do so, do what I'm asked to do. I put aside my own concerns when faced with the client who orders a dish cooked a certain way or asks for certain seasoning. My friends, is that not the way of Christ? Though Passard has more than enough training to be a kitchen snob, he humbles himself for the sake of his guests, and he serves them according to their needs, to their preferences. Now, check out the last question. What would you choose for your last meal? That's a great question. <laughs> A lot of us never know we're having our last meal. We just die. Sorry. I promise this would end on a positive note. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was spicy. Um, what would you like for your last meal? Here's what he says. Listen, and lean in on this. An empty stomach. He says, 
I would fast and then open the most beautiful cookbook, the one I've been waiting for all my life. You know, I think what Passard is saying is that he wants an empty stomach when he enters into heaven, as good as meals are on earth. The meal that awaits us in Christ's presence is, is the ones that our stomachs really long for. This promised meal to come causes Passar to press on in faith. Patient. Let's pray. Father, this, in some ways, we feel like we've been laid on an anvil and the hammer of your word has come down on us. It is a challenging word to us. We don't like to admit it. We're not as mature as we think we are. And we're often just comfortable with that. We ask, though, that this would change from here on out. May we lay aside our foolish, childish ways. May we enjoy milk, but also a nice solid food meal along with it. May we grow. May we encourage one another. May we be so on task for Christ and his kingdom um, that we, we're just different people. Now, we need your spirit for that. We cannot do it on our own, and we need your body, the church, for we cannot do it on our own. And we're thankful that you've given us both of these. We thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.